You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Never take a bath when you should be on a battlefield. Ancient History Fangirl Life Act. fell, you can see the stars clearly. Taurus the bull, Hercules and Lyra, the great charioteer. Your people in far-off Cilicia called them something different. You can barely remember now. What would those heroes of old say of your performance today? Your army fled, your cavalry routed. You've been wounded, but not to the death as befits a warrior. Your knee throbs and you shift your weight on the cold ground. You fought until you could not stand, but somehow you're still alive. And you're not the only one. As night falls, you can hear the groans of the wounded, some of them hurt far worse than you. Somewhere nearby, a boy cries for his mother. A man lying down the slope is asking for water. And you can hear them coming, the battlefield scavengers, rifling through the corpses. They are looking for weapons, for armor, for money, for a solid pair of boots or a stout cloak anything they can use. You hear them laughing and joking among themselves as they wander among you, cutting throats perfunctorily if they find someone alive. The crying boy falls suddenly silent and you know why. You hold very still. Time passes. The sky grows darker, the ground colder. The heroes of old shine down on you, a terrible all-seeing light. Your body stiffens. Your knee throbs terribly. It would have been better to die here, a warrior's death. But then you remember them, Salvius, a broad grin splitting his face, urging the cavalry on, your fevered arguments behind the walls of Triocala, the enemy bearing down on your fledgling kingdom. It had been your idea to go out of the city walls and face them in the field like men. Now half of your army lies bleeding out its life on this battlefield. The other half has fled. Those who survive need their leader. They need to be rallied. They won't last a week on their own. The rebellion isn't done with you. So you lie very still and you wait for the scavengers to pass. When you're sure they've moved on, you haul yourself to your feet, bind your wound with a strip of cloth, and then you go. 
slowly at first, then finally you break into a hobbling run all the way back to walled Triocala. The blood-red heart of the rebellion still beats in your body. It is not for you to die here. Not today. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. In our last episode, we told you the story of the First Surveil War, when an epic prophet, fire-breather, priest of the Syrian mermaid goddess Adargadis, and miracle worker named Eunice led a rebellion that lasted twice as long as the Spartacus War. For a time, Eunice controlled all of Sicily and had himself crowned king of a new kingdom, but he ended his life devoured by lice in a jail cell. It was an ignominious end to a courageous, remarkable leader who was possibly also a wizard. But Eunice inspired slave revolts all across the Republic before he died, and 28 years later, when the next serious rebellion threatened Rome, it was strongly inspired by his example. The Second Servile War also occurred in Sicily in 104 BC, 28 years after the First Servile War, and it ended just 27 years before Spartacus. So it was a cycle. It was definitely cyclical. And Jenny, all of this began with a general named Marius. That name is so familiar. That rings a bell, Jen. Remember when we started our Julius Caesar series by telling you about Marius? I could never forget. What a beginning to what a long, long period with Julius Caesar. He could just eat a baby in the length of that season. And we didn't. But anyway. (laughs) And neither of us did, and that is good. (laughs) Marius was Julius Caesar's uncle. He was a famous populist general who introduced fateful military reforms that pulled the thread that unwound the great ugly sweater of the Roman Republic. And it was ugly. It was not like one of those ugly but kind of hipster kitschy like Christmas jumpers. It was just something ugly. And I'm quite proud of that metaphor. You're welcome. It's a great metaphor. I mean, the Roman Republic sometimes is made out to be this incredible democracy. And what we looked at last time and what we'll be looking at this time is what actually made that democracy work and kept those senators in their togas and riches is a terrible, disgusting system. Yeah, it was the system that gave them the time and the money to develop this education, to be the great thinkers and politicians and the power, you know, all the bribes they had to lay down. We've talked in depth about how the system works. That was all funded by the slave labor of the Latifundia. So that's why our last episode is one of the grimmest ones we've ever done. It's up there. I mean, the Vercingetorix series is also up there, I think. And that's why we chose to start with Dionysus this season. <laughs> that's why we're not drinking. Although I would say maybe if you're caught in the Servile Wars, you might want to be drinking. Maybe not. Just basic survival. You know what? It's a kind of a crapshoot. If you're caught during the Servile Wars, probably the wine and booze are safer to drink than the water, as I say all the time. But let's get back to the story. Throughout the 80s BC, General Marius fought a brutal civil war with his former underling, Sulla, that ripped Rome apart. But that's in the future. And we tell you more about it in Julius Caesar and the Pirate's Ransom. In this story, Marius was a new general, just starting to make a name for himself. Oh, one of the reasons I love him is he's just such a late bloomer. Marius was a squeaky clean, fresh face, just getting started with his career. He had a dewy face and wide eyes. And how old was he? He was 53. (laughs) (laughs) The year was 104 BC. Fresh off winning the Jugurthine War in Numidia, he returned to Rome triumphant. The Senate was duly impressed, and so was the Roman public. 
Marius was elected consul that year, and the Senate assigned him to go put down a war going on in Gaul against two troublesome Germanic tribes, the Cimbri and the Teutones. The Cimbrian War, as it was called, had already been going on for about nine years at this point, and it had already cost the Romans about 60,000 men, if you believe the numbers. I suggest side-eyeing the numbers. Anytime you see a round number, it's just an estimate and may or may not be inflated or deflated, depending on the source's agenda. Might be from Mark Antony. We all know he can't count. Mark can't count past 12 Antony. That's right. Marius had to raise a large number of troops quickly to go fight that war, and one of the places he turned to was Bithynia. Bithynia was a region in Asia Minor that was a client kingdom of Rome, meaning that it was allied with Rome, could rely on Rome's protection against its own regional enemies, but also had to pay Rome tributes and send troops to fight in Roman wars. Bithynia was ruled by a king named Nicomedes III, the Nicomedes that Julius Caesar spent a passionate whirlwind few months with at the beginning of his career. Hot zaddy Nicomedes? Yeah, this was his dad. And I just have this feeling the apple did not fall far from that tree, and he was probably also quite the silver fox, but that's just me. Listen, Nicomedes IV learned all his hot moves from his dad. (laughs) In my fan fiction that I'm writing in my head. I need to get back to the story, Jenny. We have to stop the romance fanfiction and get back to the story. I'm just going to be daydreaming this whirlwind beautiful romance here in my head because there's going to be so little romance in the rest of this story. Let me have this, Jen. All right, I give you this. Anyway, so Nicomedes III sent Marius a message. He had no fighting men in Bithynia. None at all. They were all tapped out. Every single last one of the fighting age men in his country had been hauled off by the Roman tax collectors and sold into slavery because, guess what? We can't pay our taxes. So this sounds like an excuse. It's like, really, Nicomedes III? Like, seriously, there's like not even one fighting man in your country because nobody's paid their taxes? I mean, I can hear Marius saying that, but... It's actually not that far off. Mike Duncan, in his book, The Storm Before the Storm, talks about the Publicani, the tax farmers of ancient Rome. At this point in the Republic, there was a unique method of tax collection that was rife with abuse. In ancient Rome, you didn't just do your taxes in TurboTax or whatever, or have your employer withhold some shit and just write the government a check if you owed them money, or maybe you get a refund, or I don't know how you do your taxes. That is not how the ancient Romans did it. Here's how they did it. Every few years, all your property was assessed. Your real estate, your land, your slaves, because the ancient Romans considered slaves property. Your personal belongings, your farm animals, anything else you owned, your underwear drawer, all of it. Not my underwear drawer. I have a problem with that. Not my shiny, shiny necklaces. They're not even worth much. You basically had a tax collector come into your house, count up all your shit, take an inventory, rifle through your private drawer. Oh, I know what he found in your private drawer. Nobody knows about that, Jen. It's the drawer that time forgot. (laughs) (laughs) Julius Caesar knows about it. I told him while we were making muffins, okay? Why? (laughs) I just, you know, it was an intimate time. We were exchanging muffin secrets. I really hate that I introduced you two to, like, nailed it because now... Julius Caesar and I are equally bad at baking. We've bonded. So yeah, you would have all your stuff just rifled through by these tax collectors, and then you would be assessed and charged theoretically a modest amount based on the value of everything you owned. Theoretically, it was not that much. It would be like between 1% and 3%, more if the Republic was at war and the Senate needed cash, which was all the time. So basically, it would usually be more. Are you saying the Senate never stopped being at war? 
or having cash flow problems. For some reason, even though these dudes were all extremely rich with all their disgusting latifundia money, they still needed cash because the horrible political machine was a hungry maw of hell. So the tax collector would basically give you this bill and you'd have to pay the tax collector directly. This seems deeply unfair. Uh, yeah. The tax collector, though, wouldn't be a government employee. No, that would be too easy. The Roman government privatized this task. And here's how it worked. Every few years, the government would put the right to collect taxes in certain regions up for auction. People called publicani or tax farmers would bid for those rights and pay the government up front. Then the publicani went out to try and recoup their investment by collecting taxes from the people in their region. There was a risk that they wouldn't collect enough to make up for their original investment. But if they collected more than they paid, well, then they got to keep the profit. There were few checks and balances to stop the tax farmers from exorbitantly overcharging people. And people who couldn't pay their tax bills were at risk of being sold into slavery. From there, one of the places they could wind up was on a lot of fundia. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. At this point in the Roman Republic, the economy was pretty flush. The Republic was expanding due to trade and conquest. In fact, the country was doing so well that a law had just been passed exempting Roman citizens in Italy from being subject to taxes. That meant that the entire tax burden fell to the provinces, especially the Asian provinces, which were seen as particularly wealthy. So, when Nicomedes III of Bithynia said he didn't have enough fighting-age men suitable for Marius's conscriptions because they'd all been sold into slavery by the publicani for not paying their tax bills, he may have been exaggerating, but he's also hinting at a real problem here. It's quite possible his people were being heavily victimized by tax collectors, and there was little he could do about it besides try the best he could to protect them from conscriptions as well. Upon hearing about how everyone in Bithynia was being sold into slavery over tax debts, the Roman Senate was outraged. And let's be clear. <laughs> they weren't outraged because people were being sold into slavery over their tax debts. No, no. They're not people who actually care. Oh, no. No. They were outraged because there was nobody for Marius to press gang into his war. This is the great democracy. Sorry, Jen. You may continue. I just had to make sure that that was clear. The Senate introduced a law that no freedman living in a Roman allied kingdom or province could be forced into slavery, and those who had been must be freed immediately. This law was enacted to free up more troops from Marius, because as we said, war was their business. That's what they were concerned about here. 
Well, yeah, because this is that expansion. Remember, we're going to continue to expand and expand until we get to the first real major hideous defeat, which is the Battle of Teutoburg Forest, where Augustus is like, geez, bring me back my legions. And yes, yes, I know there are other major defeats between now and then, but I'm just using that as a checkpoint. Well, I don't actually, I didn't go down the whole rabbit hole of what the Kimbri and Teutons were fighting over, but my sense is they probably had really good reason to be at war with Rome. Well, the Romans at this point in time are really kind of being expansionist dicks. So somebody's got to stop them. Yeah. So this law was enacted to free up more troops from Marius, but its wording was very general. This law was in fact a sweeping act of emancipation that affected all enslaved men, women, and children in Roman provinces, including Sicily, with its booming industrial agriculture sector entirely powered by slave labor. The praetor of Sicily was a man named Nerva. He was tasked with implementing the new rules in his own region. He immediately established a tribunal to assess the records of all the slaves in Sicily, possibly around 300,000 people, to determine who was eligible for release. These tribunals were efficient. In a week, Nerva had freed approximately 800 enslaved people from allied countries, with more to follow. But the owners of Sicily's industrial agriculture estates, the fearsome Latifundia, They did not like this law. They'd invested money in their slave labor. They didn't want to see their entire investment go up in smoke. So they approached Nerva and they said, look, you can't just free all the slaves on the island. It's bad for our business. They strong-armed Nerva into backing off this law. So Nerva shut his tribunal down and sent many of the people he'd previously freed back into slavery. But in the single short week the tribunals were running, Rumors had taken hold among the island's enslaved population. All throughout Sicily, hundreds of thousands of enslaved people suddenly had hope. And when the tribunals were shut down and that hope was ripped away from them, these people erupted in violence, and that is how the Second Servile War began. You can honestly not blame them for why this began. (laughs) No! No, you cannot! One day the law says this, one day the law says that. It's fucking bullshit! Everything about this is awful, but this is just extra. Yeah, well, it's just like all of a sudden you have this reprieve and it's like, oh my god, like, something might get better and then you see, you know, people that you know are being freed and you see that happening and you think that this is going to happen and then it doesn't happen. And that is, you know, probably the last straw on the backs of people who had suffered a lot of atrocities. So outside the town of Syracuse, approximately 180 slaves rebelled, taking up kitchen and farm implements. They broke their shackles, killed their oppressors in their beds and made for high ground, throwing up a hasty fortification on a nearby hilltop. Nerva quickly raised a force of his own and besieged the hilltop, but the rebel's position was too strong, so he decided to break in by treachery. Nerva put the word out to a notorious local outlaw named Titinius. About two years ago, Titinius had been imprisoned and awaiting the death penalty, but he'd escaped to the hills of Sicily, and since then he'd been living as an outlaw robbing and murdering whoever was unlucky enough to wander into his territory. I bet he was a shepherd. He might have just been an outlaw. Like, he might have had nothing to do with shepherding. The shepherds are bad news on Sicily. Titinius was known for his brutality, but he was also known for never harming an enslaved person. Nerva made a proposal to Titinius. Help me out, and I'll put you under my protection. You don't have to be a hunted man anymore. I'll just, you know, make that little arrest warrant against you. Go away. Titinius agreed. 
Leading a group of escaped slaves, he approached the hill fort, telling the guards he planned to join the rebels. Titanius had a lot of cred with these people, and he was enthusiastically welcomed inside. The rebels even appointed him their general. That turned out to be a mistake, because as soon as he got this appointment, Titanius turned around and opened the gates for Nerva. Very disappointing, Titanius. Nerva took the fort without effort, and the rebels, those not killed in the fighting, threw themselves from the fortifications, committing suicide rather than be sold back into slavery. So, Nerva was done here, right? The Second Servile War was over. He gave himself a big pat on the back, disbanded his army, and went home to take a nice long bath. But... It was a fake out. No. (laughs) Shocker. Never take a bath when you should be on a battlefield. Ancient history fangirl life hack. That's right. If you're in the middle of the Servile Wars, somebody else is going to be rebelling in about, oh, five minutes. Because people are really, really, really justifiably angry. You do not realize the level of pissed. So fucking angry. So angry. So about 150 miles away, in the town of Heraclea, on the southwestern coast of Sicily, an even bigger uprising exploded almost immediately after the first one was put down. It started with a group of 80 enslaved people who slit the throat of a Roman knight. And I did not go down a whole rabbit hole on who this Roman knight was and why he got his throat slit, but I'm pretty sure he had it coming. He definitely had it coming. From there, approximately 1,800 more enslaved people flocked to their banner, and they took up a fortified position on Mount Caprianus, outside of Heraclea. It took Nerva about a week to hear the news and then scramble to get his disbanded army back together. Meanwhile, the rebels on Mount Caprianus continued to attract allies, mostly escaped slaves who came armed with anything they could grab after looting and burning their latifundias. Rumors spread that Nerva was a coward for not marching sooner, but logistics were probably not on his side here. But the Praetor in Heraclea did not wait for Nerva to get his shit together. He sent a force of 600 Roman militiamen garrisoned at Enna, which was the historical flashpoint of the First Servile War, if you listen to that episode, to take care of these rebels. But the Roman militia was outnumbered more than three to one, and the rebels had the high ground, not to mention a fierce core of slingers that absolutely ravaged the militia. Slingers are terrifying, you guys. They're the scariest. Under a hail of slingstones, the Roman forces ran, dropping their weapons on the way. Now the rebel fighters had better weapons than kitchen implements to fight with. And I just want to say, this is kind of a trope that we're seeing come up periodically, you know, like the enslaved people rebel and they always do it using kitchen and farm implements. Diodorus will tell us that. It's kind of a trope, but it also makes sense because I doubt that these enslaved people and these latifundias had ready access to like swords. But one of the important things that we saw in the first Servile War and that we're going to see in the second surveil war is how people got their weapons. Yeah, and we're going to see it again when we get to the third servile war, which is the most famous one, because getting your weapons is super important. It's all about who had swords, who had access to swords, how they got swords. Because if you don't have those weapons, what we see in these stories is you can overpower and you can get so far without weapons. But in order to successfully take on the Roman army, you actually have to have weapons. If you want to hold your own, you can't come onto the battle with like farm implements. 
And you might get lucky a few times because the army that they send against you might be, you know, ill-equipped itself and not well-trained because they're underestimating you or you might outnumber them. That will last forever. And this is a thing that we see repeating itself more than once in these kinds of wars. So where they get weapons and how they get weapons turns out to be important. And Eunice, if you remember from the last episode, chained metal workers to their forges to produce weapons and armor. And there's like a little bit more creative ways that the rebels in this story get their weapons. But this is the first instance that we see that the Roman forces just sort of butterfingers drop my sword as they ran away. I guess the whole army did this. And that is how the rebels first got their swords, according to this story. Under a hail of sling stones, the Roman forces ran, dropping their weapons on the way. Now the rebel fighters had better weapons and kitchen implements to fight with. Word of the rebels' success traveled fast, and soon slaves were revolting all over the island, killing their oppressors and making their way to Mount Caprianus. Within days, the number of rebels grew to more than 6,000, and it's here we see their first strong leader emerge, a man named Salvius. There are a lot of similarities between Salvius and Eunice, his predecessor in the First Servile War. Like Eunice, Salvius was Syrian, and he'd been both a slave and an entertainer. Diodorus tells us he, quote, played the flute wildly in women's entertainments, and like, we have no idea what that means. I think we have an idea what that means, actually. Number one, he was a flute monster. He was a flute monster, and I think number two is the sentence I haven't read you yet, which is, he was also a prophet of Dionysus. And what do we know about Dionysus, Jenny? Well, we know that he had mayonnaise, and his rituals were very music-driven, so my theory here is that Salvius played the flute at the mayonnaise orgies. So the rebels were like, we are down with Dionysus, and we're down with this guy named Salvius, and they make him their king. And like Eunice, he took a new name, the name of another important Seleucid ruler, Trifon. So these aren't the only similarities you'll see between the first and second servile wars. Some modern historians have suggested that the ancient writers, i.e. Diodorus, looking at you, had simply cut and pasted details from the first servile war to the second to fill in gaps where they didn't know what happened. I mean, would that surprise me? No. However, in an article called, quote, The Pirate Connection, Rome's Servile Wars and Eastern Campaigns by Aaron Beek, Beek mentions that some of these similarities do make historical sense, such as the fact that key leaders of both servile wars were Syrian, Eunice and Salvius, and Cilician, that would be Cleon and Athenion, who hasn't shown up yet, but we'll get to him. He mentions that because of Rome's war with the East, it's not that weird that these two pairs of men had such similar backgrounds because that's likely the kinds of people who were being taken into slavery at this time. And that these people were likely to have more military experience than slaves from other areas. Sure, and it's why when we get to the Third Servile War, it's a different makeup of people. So let's get back to our story. Salvius's army of rebels rolled over the landscape, attracting over 20,000 new recruits. Soon, Salvius felt prepared to attack his first major strategic location, the fortified town of Morgantina. While he was engaged in a fierce all-out assault of a walled town, Nerva rocked up with 10,000 men he'd finally managed to scrounge together, to call out of their bathhouses and be like, oh, we're not done yet. Look who showed up, Nerva. Nice to see you, buddy. Thanks for coming to the party. 
yeah, here's the thing about Nerva. He was like, oh, we're done? We're done now? Great. Unfortunately, if you don't finish the job, Nerva, you're not done. Put away the mission accomplished banner. (laughs) (laughs) Mission unaccomplished. That's right. (laughs) So while Salvius and his men were busy assaulting the city, Nerva attacked the rebel camp, killed the guard stationed there, freed the prisoners, and there were a lot of prisoners. One source mentions women specifically. And... He took all of Salvius's stuff. The sources were kind of vague about who these women were, and I wasn't sure if these were women who were also enslaved on these Latifundia who ran away with the rebellion and just kind of joined this army, or if they were captives who had been captured during some battles or what. But I know we were talking in the last episode a lot about how if you were a civilian during this time period, especially if you were, you know, a non-combatant enslaved person and the people on your Latifundia rebelled, there was this, I believe it was in place now, it's actually kind of difficult to figure out like what rules were in place when but as far as I know there was still this rule in place where if slaves rebelled and killed the Latifundia owner the rebelling people wouldn't be the only ones punished the law said the owner had to crucify all of their slaves even people who had nothing to do with the rebellion so if you were enslaved on one of these um, Latifundia and this happened you kind of can't stay there like it's not safe for you to stay there it's not safe for you to be just out in the countryside because of the shepherds and the violence and the shepherds. Oh, God. Oh, the shepherds. You can't just be anywhere. It's not safe in the smaller towns because they have no protection. It's not safe on the roads. It's not safe in the woods. It's not safe in the bigger towns because you might get caught up in a siege situation and those can get really nasty. So some people joined these armies. So would somebody who escaped from a lot of fundia have a would they be able to be visibly identified? Did they have a tattoo or a brand? Well, um, I have some information about that. As far as I know, I read some conflicting information. I'm not expert historian on this, but from what I understand, a lot of the time, if you were enslaved, you might have a collar that had, it would have some writing on it. Like it would have the person who had bought you, like their name and how much money they will give to whoever returns you if you've run away. Sometimes people were branded. I think that that wasn't necessarily like a uniform practice throughout the Republic or Empire, whatever time period we're talking about. But Diodorus says that people were branded on Sicily specifically. And he also says that Demophilus, you know, the really bad Latifundia owner from the last episode, he used to tattoo people on their faces. So some Latifundia owners were doing things like that, where, yeah, you could tell at a glance if somebody was enslaved, if their Latifundia owner did that to them. And do you want me to do you want me to tell you why he probably did that? Because it was cheaper to brand and tattoo them than it would have been to make them a collar. Isn't that just so fucking awful? It is. And that is the horror of the Latifundia system on Sicily in particular was that it was so fucking cheap. So if you are not angry enough in your normal life and you want <laughs> and you want to listen to this episode, this is um this is what we talk about in the previous episode on the first surveil war. It was just horrific. When you had these rebellions, everyone on the Latifundia would be punished for the rebellion and they would all probably be crucified, whether or not they had an active part in it. So you've got these women and children who are remaining in the camp and non-combatants. And you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, but wouldn't it just be safer to run away? 
it wouldn't be safer to run away because you have to remember Sicily is an island. So if you go into the hills, you're going to have to deal with the shepherds who we talked about in the last episode. The shepherds are really scary. They're really scary because this horrible system makes them scary. They're not being provided with adequate clothing. They're not being given proper shelter. So they take to lives of banditry to make up for the basic needs that are not being met. Yeah, so essentially they would turn to banditry just to feed and clothe themselves and they would frequently target poor people because they did not have the security to protect themselves. Yeah, they weren't traveling with an armed escort. They also weren't just attacking travelers. They were attacking villages, you know, smaller villages. Definitely, if you were in a smaller village that didn't have a big wall, or if you were a rural tenant farmer on one of these big latifundias, you were kind of very vulnerable to violence, especially in the interior of Sicily. It wasn't safe to just run away and hide in the woods. So you'd probably think, okay, well, maybe we can escape to the coast. All right, you're on an island. How are you going to get off that island. Number one, if you have a facial tattoo or brand, you're not going to get very far. Right, because the coasts are the areas of this island owned by the wealthy elites, so they would know. Like, you can't just blend in. Yeah. Number two, odds were very high that if you scrounged up the money to get off the island, you would also wind up dealing with pirates who would sell you back into slavery. So really, there wasn't a lot of options. That's not to say some people didn't take advantage of the chaos and escape. But most people knew that the safest place to be was within that camp. Right. So that may be who they're talking about here when they say there were women with this army, that these were probably women seeking shelter with the army because they really there really were not a lot of safe options here if you were a non-combatant, which is just one of the horrible things about these stories. So in our story, we've gotten to the point where Salvius is off fighting in a different place and Nerva finally decided that he's going to get out of the bath and have a counter strike. And his counter strike is at Salvius's camp where Salvius isn't, where lots of women, children and non-combatants are. Now, as soon as Salvius and his men realized what was happening, they turned back to the camp. They outnumbered Nerva's men two to one. And once again, they had the high ground. So the Romans fled, but they fled with Salvius's stuff. Including those weapons. Especially those weapons. What Salvius needed was for the Romans to conveniently drop their weapons as they ran like they'd done before. Whoops, butterfingers. Better lighten my load so I can run faster. Do you know what, guys? I totally grease those weapons myself. I'm not going to tell you what I <laughs> grease them with, but if you drop them now, I promise you won't get sick later. <laughs> That's exactly what Salvius <laughs> shouted to make everyone drop their weapons. So Salvius announced that no one who threw away their weapons would be stabbed in the back as they ran away. Everyone else would be fair fucking game. Also, he put something really gross on the swords. We don't know what because the ancient sources don't tell us, so we're just speculating. Maybe pooped on it. I don't know. You know what? I'm going to move on. Oh, Jenny Williamson's scatological humor is the lowest form of humor. Thank you, Julius Caesar. We knew he'd appear again. Yeah, he just popped up to tell me about my humor. The Romans did not try to make a brave stand here. Many of them tossed away their weapons like you would if Salvius was yelling all this shit at you as you were running. And Salvius's army wound up with more military-grade weaponry than it started with. Score! Point to Salvius. Only about 600 of Nerva's men were killed, but about 4,000 were taken prisoner. Tales of Salvius's success spread across the island like brush fire. Even more people streamed into his camp. Soon, Salvius's army had doubled in size, and he set his sights again to capturing Morgantina. He sent out a message promising to free all the enslaved people inside the city if he won. But those slaves' masters, barf, I hate that word, 
countered by offering the same thing if these enslaved people would help defend the city against Salvius instead. The enslaved people, for some reason, probably because they were coerced, chose to take the oppressor's side and help defend the city in exchange for promised freedom. But once again, Nerva put his foot in it. When is his foot not in it is really my question for you. I know, it's still in it from a few battles ago. He issued a decree that no enslaved people were to be freed until the rebellion was entirely contained. So until Salvius had been captured, everything had been cleaned up. This caused all the slaves inside Morgantina to just be like, fuck Fuck it! it. (laughs) A group of them opened the city gates to Salvius, who quickly seized control of the town. At this latest success, slave revolts erupted across the length and breadth of Sicily. Salvius was now in control of the entire eastern half of the island. And on the western side, taking his inspiration from Eunice and Cleon before him, a shepherd named Athenion killed his master and freed the slaves on his latifundia. Did you know that William Taft invented the treadmill? Or that Napoleon loved musicals? Or that Elvis wrote the Brady Bunch theme? Did you know that the previous three statements are all false? Regardless, we have your new favorite podcast. History, or His Story, is the new podcast from the Bramble Jam Network. It combines the love of history with the fun of a game show. It's history, camaraderie, and the idea of two truths and a lie all rolled into one. Dan is a former high school principal and history teacher. He tells his two best friends three themed stories from U.S. history, and one is completely false. His two buddies, along with the audience, guess which is his story. Whether it's the Wild West, the Roaring Twenties, sports, pop culture, or every major war, You'll laugh and learn listening to history or his story. So I listened to an episode on conspiracy theories, Jen, because you know how I feel about conspiracy theories. Oh, me too. Get my tinfoil hat on. (laughs) Yeah, tinfoil hats all around. So you had to guess which ones are true conspiracies and which is the made-up conspiracy. So the options were the CIA hired sex workers to give LSD to their customers in the 70s. Richard Nixon was obsessed with having a robot body double. (laughs) Or the Dalai Lama was on the CIA payroll as an anti-China operative. I guessed wrong. Yeah, so did I, but I had fun. (laughs) We definitely both got fooled. There's really fun chemistry between the hosts, and I really like that they brought a listener on as one of the hosts for the day. I thought that was a cool way to involve the audience. Yeah, it's a great interactive feature. So listen and subscribe to History or His Story wherever you listen to podcasts or head to historyorhisstory.com. Athenion was Cilician, like Cleon, Eunice's right-hand general from the First Servile War. And like Cleon, Athenion was described as a shepherd. And like we said in the previous episode, just a few minutes ago, Sicilian shepherds were very fucking scary, roaming the island and robbing people, forming what we've seen described as paramilitary gangs who traveled with packs of wild dogs and followed no law but their own. So if you are going to travel on the roads of Sicily, bring some schnozzages for the dogs. The dogs don't want to hurt you. I mean, they're just well-trained to do their job, and sometimes that's attacking people. Listen, they've been raised on raw meat, so bring some meat. Yeah. But there was more than murder to Athenion. He was also an outstanding astrologer. 
He could totally read your star sign, give you a really good weekly and monthly horoscope. No, he would go back to the stars around your birth to tell you like what you being born under a certain star meant for your entire life. Like, oh, to have an ancient Roman star chart drawn. I would love to see that. Yeah, like one of those astrologers who was the astrologer to emperors and could totally tell when you're about to throw him off a cliff. They would go all the way back to the planet and the stars and what was happening when you were born or when you were conceived and they'd be able to like chart your whole life based on it. I mean, if you believe that stuff, which obviously I'm a little superstitious. <laughs> so Athenion released over 200 enslaved people from his Latifundia and then attracted another 800 followers within the next five days. And Athenian did things a little differently than some of the other rebel leaders we've seen thus far. Specifically, he didn't take all comers. Diodorus says that Eunice accepted all followers out of desperation, including local free Greeks and native Sicilians who'd been oppressed but not enslaved by the wealthy Romans and the Carthaginians before them, and who proved to be difficult allies. Even so, Eunice had taken all who wanted to join, and you don't see Salvius being particularly selective either, but Athenion only allowed strong, healthy, able-bodied fighting men into his ranks. So he did not let any of the women, children, non-combatant refugees from these Latifundias, did not let them into his part of the army. He said, I got no use for you. Nope. He also imposed strict discipline and leveraged his astrology skills to his advantage. Astrology for crowd control. That was Athenion's specialty. He claimed that through the stars, the gods had told him that he was ordained to be king of Sicily, and thus his followers must not burn crops in the field or kill livestock because these were part of his kingdom. So after assembling an army of about 10,000, Athenion set about taking control of the western half of Sicily. This was a bad time to be just an ordinary person in Sicily. There was no rule of law on this island, and you couldn't help but be caught up in the extreme violence, even if you weren't a member of either army. Many people retreated to walled cities for their own protection, abandoning homesteads in the countryside. Athenion, now leading an elite paramilitary force over 10,000 strong, attempted to besiege the city of Lilibaeum, but the city's defenses proved too strong, and he was forced to back off, telling his men he'd been ordered to by the gods. And just as he pulled back, a relief force of Mauritanians sailed into the harbor to help the defenders, and Athenion spun this as part of his prophecy, solidifying his hold on his men, even in defeat. So he was just like, yeah, I knew. I cast my star charts, and the gods told me that these guys were going to sail into this harbor and reinforce the defenders. So, got to bounce. Once again, history repeats itself. Salvius marched into Athenion's territory in western Sicily, started besieging the town of Triocala, and in the midst of the siege, summoned Athenion to him as a king would summon a general, just as Eunice had done to Cleon 30 years before. And just as it had been then, all the Romans thought Athenion would refuse to obey Salvius, and the two generals would just fight it out and destroy each other, and they could just sit back and do nothing and be fine. But no, Athenion heeded the summons. Athenion and Salvius joined forces, with Athenion serving as Salvius's general and military advisor. Working together and with the help of the rebelling slaves inside the city, the two captured Triacala. Triacala was the ideal home base for running a rebellion. Diodorus tells us it was, quote, filled with an abundance of all things necessary for the life of man. First, for springs of excellent sweet water. Secondly, for vineyards and olive plantations and rich lands for tillage. And thirdly, that it was an impregnable position built upon a high and inaccessible rock. Its defenses were already very strong. Salvius and Athenion set about making them even stronger, adding walls and a ditch around the city. Salvius had a massive palace built, 
as well as an immense agora or open public space for large assemblies. He embraced the trappings of kingship, appointing advisors wearing a purple robe and walking around preceded by a group of lictors or special bodyguards that typically accompany senators, or at least according to Diodorus. So Diodorus keeps describing both Eunice and Salvius as doing this, as fashioning themselves as kings and picking up the trappings of kingship and wearing purple robes. And if you remember, like there was a special purple toga that was reserved for only if you had a triumph. You're not supposed to wear it outside of that because it signals kingship and that was bad and the senators might stab you. Stabby, stabby, Julius Caesar style. They get really stabby when someone starts acting like a king until Julius Caesar does it, in which case... They got really stabby. <laughs> right. That proves my point, actually. Anyway, like, Diodorus keeps bringing this up. Was this some kind of parable about what was going on at the time? Diodorus is writing sort of at the very end of the Republic. In the last 30 years of the Republic, public pretty much exactly from 60 to 30 BC. So what's happened since he started his Library of History, which is the volume that this story appears in, Julius Caesar has taken power and then been assassinated. Mark Antony and Cleopatra had been fighting with Octavian. The second triumvirate has happened and bloody prescriptions have swept Rome. And I believe the year prior to his finishing it was the year of Actium, the Battle of Actium, and Octavian had won that. And I'm not sure at what point during this process he actually wrote about the Servile Wars. It could have been any time in that 30-year period. But you kind of wonder if he's saying something about kingship, like he's kind of demonizing them in a very specifically Roman way by having them pick up these very visible trappings of kingship as soon as they get power. You know what I mean? Yeah, and very visible Roman trappings of kingship. Like they're in purple, which is very important to Romans. Eunice and Salvius, neither of them were Roman. They were both Syrian, and I believe Syria was not a Roman province at this point. I'm not necessarily sure, because we don't have their accounts, that they would call themselves kings. We don't know what they would have called themselves, because we're only getting that story from a Roman aristocrat's point of view, who the worst thing you could possibly be is a king. And the thing that we get out of this whole cycle of stories is that the might of the empire is able to take down any king be it foreign or internal. It's one of those things where being aware of the slant that the writer has makes you question their narrative. Potentially, he was a Republican who felt very strongly that if the only way I can speak out against what's going on is to tell this story, what I want to tell people, what I want to leave for people is that the might of our republic is greater than any kingship. Or like maybe the trappings that he has Eunice and Salvius pick up are the same ones Octavian is picking up right now. Maybe he's doing a little dig at Octavian. We don't know. We are talking out of our asses at this point. We've got the fan fiction tinfoil hats on. So anyway, at this point in the story, it had been a year since the Second Servile War had started. It was now 103 BC. Nerva had not exactly covered himself with glory in this war because he would just really rather be taking a bath. His term as praetor ended this year, and the Senate sent a new praetor, a guy named Lucullus. So Lucullus arrived on the island with 17,000 troops in tow, ready to make a name for himself. Salvius wanted to stay behind the walls of Triacala, but Athenian did not want to get trapped in another siege situation. So he advised that they should meet Lucullus in the open. So Salvius took his army, 40,000 strong, and marched out to an open place not far from where the Romans were camped. The first few days, the two armies tested each other in small, fierce skirmishes. But eventually, things escalated to full-on battle. 
at the head of an elite corps of 200 cavalry. Athenion, quote, covered the ground round about him with the bodies of his enemies. Finally, after being wounded in both knees and then receiving a third wound, he was no longer able to keep fighting. This was a massive morale blow to his army. Salvius tried but was unable to stop them from fleeing. The Romans pursued the rebel army, slaying about 20,000, or half of Salvius's forces, on their mad dash back to the safety of Triacala. Meanwhile, Athenion lay on the ground where he fell, but he wasn't quite dead yet. In fact, he was only faking it. He lay on the battlefield, staying very still and quiet until nightfall, when he snuck away to Triacala and safety. The rebel army was extremely demoralized after this defeat. Many even suggested they return to their oppressors and throw themselves upon their mercy. Salvius persuaded them that this was a bad idea, do not do that you guys, do not go back to the Latifundia, and urged them not to put themselves back in the hands of their enemies. He convinced his people to hold out for now. Lucullus might have won, but this was no easy victory. In fact, it took him nine whole days to regroup, come after Salvius, and set up a siege at Triacala. Lucullus tried every trick in the book to try and break through Triacala's defenses. But the rebels, newly inspired, fought fiercely, and the city's defenses were just too strong. After a short but furious siege, Lucullus was forced to withdraw. This did not play well back in Rome. The whole time, the senators had been watching Lucullus's progress, and they were not impressed. He was not getting a good performance review. They did not see any reason why this whole thing was taking so long because the Romans are assholes who always underestimate rebelling enslaved people. Assholes. Yes. And now, with Lucullus failing to take Salvius's home base of Triacala, they had absolutely had it with this dude. He was fired. They accused him of corruption, incompetence, accepting bribes, and just sucking at his job. Then, they voted to replace him as praetor. When he heard that the Senate had voted to send in his replacement, Lucullus was enraged. He left Sicily, but not before burning down all his fortifications and siege works, destroying his supplies, and disbanding his entire army, because if the next guy succeeded and made it look easy, that would make Lucullus look twice as bad. I mean, this just cracks me up. It's so fucking petty. It's It's so so petty. petty. (laughs) See him being like, burn it all to the ground. I agree. It's just kind of like, you get fired, you have to train your replacement, whatever. You're just like, I'm burning my whole workstation. Burn it down. If you're a poor person out in the countryside and you have no protection from either one of these armies, I don't know that you would necessarily see the Roman army as like some kind of protection, but maybe you would. If that's the case, then Lucullus is really, really demonstrating that these people don't give a shit about you. Let me tell you what. And it's one of those times where you can feel some sympathy for the ordinary person stuck on Sicily while all of this is happening. Like, you're like, so you're not going to protect. Okay, so you're just going to burn everything. Okay, okay. They're just really deeply petty and concerned over their own shit. And that's it. Yeah. So this strategy, it worked. Of course it did. I mean, it's like, how shall I sabotage you today? Oh, wait. The next guy sent in to take over was a man named Servilius. He arrived to find he had no resources, no army, and no supplies, and he had to start from scratch. Around this time, Salvius died. The circumstances of his death are mysterious. The ancient sources don't mention a cause. 
Athenian took sole control over the rebel army. And while Servilius struggled to gain his footing, Athenian did exactly what he felt like in Sicily, pillaging cities and sacking the countryside. Soon, Athenian controlled the entire island. Servilius never quite gained his footing, and eventually he was forced to return home in disgrace. Oh, such a tiny violin for you, Servilius. I know. Like Lucullus before him, he was put on trial, found guilty of sucking at his job, and banished. But things were about to take a turn, because Marius had just got home from fighting the Cimbri, and the Romans were about to get serious about putting an end to this rebellion. The year was 101 BC. The Second Servile War had now been raging for three years, and it had gotten so bad that it threatened the grain supply in the city of Rome. They really never get serious about these rebellions until it starts to threaten the grain supply in Rome, Jen. Well, the thing is, it doesn't impact them until the grain supply in Rome is threatened because they can't see the effects of what's going on. Unless they have family on Sicily or they have property on Sicily, they're not really engaged in what's going on because it doesn't concern them. So the people elected Marius consul, and this was his sixth consulship in seven years. This was unusual because the rules were that no one in Rome could serve as consul more than once in a 10-year period. That rule was meant to prevent prevent any one person from accumulating too much power. But things were so dire, the wars were so bad, and Marius was so good a general that the public was okay with breaking the rule. So Marius appointed his right-hand man to take care of the uprising in Sicily. This was a man who'd fought beside him in the Cimbrian Wars and in North Africa before that, a man named Gaius Aquilius. Aquilius was sent with a full consular army, 25,000 infantry, and 2,500 cavalry, brought home early from the Cimbrian War, which was still actually going on at this point in time, for the express purpose of taking care of Athenion and his army once and for all. Aquilius landed in Sicily and went into action immediately, forcing Athenion into open confrontation. After sending three successive Roman praetors running back to the mainland with their tails between their legs, Athenion had reason to be confident. But this time it was different. This time, Athenion was facing a battle-hardened army fresh from the killing fields of Cimbria and a leader who knew what he was doing, who had fought in the shadow of Marius, Rome's greatest general at this point, for the past decade. And for once, they didn't vastly outnumber their opponent either. Estimates I've seen say that Athenion had maybe between twenty and 30,000 troops at this point, and Aquilius had about 27,500 if you count the cavalry. Numbers-wise, these two were about evenly matched. Experience-wise, it was no contest. The battle was brutal and short. Only about 10,000 of the rebels made it off the field alive. Aquilius and Athenion fought hand-to-hand. Athenian managed to wound Aquilius in the head, but Aquilius slew Athenian, quote, like a hero. Ugh, I roll Diodorus. I mean, that's what Diodorus said. I think that Athenion is the heroic person here. I do too, and I feel like, ugh. I basically included that part so we could make fun of it. Well, yeah, I figured that. (laughs) (laughs) And now, without a leader, the surviving rebels scattered. They fled to fortifications, hiding places, and bolt holes throughout the island. Aquilius besieged each fortification, overcoming them all through starvation, trickery, and sheer brute force. Finally, only a single stronghold remained, with about 1,000 rebels inside. The rebels, after taking a realistic look at their chances, surrendered to Aquilius. Aquilius took a while to decide on their punishment. Finally, after mopping up in Sicily, he brought the remaining rebels back to Rome, where they were tossed into the arena to fight to the death against wild animals. The rebels refused to fight. Before a screaming crowd, they instead turned their swords on each other, 
each of them killing another in ritual suicide until the last, a man named Satyrus, fell upon his own sword. So that's the story of the Second Servile War. Once again, it's a cheery story full of fun, <laughs> joy and fun, and daisies and dancing and mayonnaise. After approximately four years of rebellion, the Roman status quo of oppression was restored, but in another 27 years, inspired by the brave actions of Salvius, Athenion, Eunice, Cleon, and their followers, a third leader would throw off the yoke of Roman slavery. That man's name was Spartacus. So that's it for this week. Join us in two weeks for our next episode. Hopefully it'll be a little bit more upbeat. We're going to be talking about the brave and interesting people who were the Thracians. So we're going to take a little break before we get to the third Servile Wars. We're going to look at the Thracians and we're going to look at what life was like as a gladiator in ancient Rome. And then we're going to bring you back to the horror. Yeah, because we need a break from the Servile Wars, right? I do. We need a break from the Servile Wars. And we really feel like it's important that you get to know, just like we did with First and Gatorix, who the Thracians were. We've heard a lot about them in passing. And now it's your time to actually find out about their brave and awesome culture. So in the meantime, while you're waiting for that episode to drop, come and talk to us on social. We're at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter and at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. And if you'd like to get even more episodes from us, check out our Patreon. We've got epic episodes for Patreon subscribers that deal with stories we didn't get to tell in our longer episodes. Episodes such as Pompey and the Pirates. We tell you a little bit about the pirate system and how that contributed to the ancient Roman slave market. The myth of the Yule Cat, that one's a little more upbeat. The story of Tuta of Illyria, a badass woman pirate. Cleopatra and King Herod, that King Herod, that's a two-parter. Yeah, we also tell you the story of Dionysus and Midas. And all about Otter Goddess, the mermaid goddess who inspired the first Servile War. We're going to do an episode on her or we've probably already dropped it at this point, actually. You can listen to all these episodes for as little as $2 a month. And that's at patreon.com slash ancient history fangirl. And you're also welcome to check out our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com, where you can send us a few bucks through our Ko-Fi account if you feel so inclined. You can also find a link to our merch and check out the show notes. And if you like our show, please leave us a nice review. These make life worth living, like my cat's floofy tail. Yeah, and we know that not everyone has money, and this is a great way to show your support. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.